On this episode of Inside the Founder Studio, we have a conversation about the state of finance in medtech. Before we do that, we're going to spend a moment with the spent. Thanks to the members of The Spent, a band that is virtual and gets together once a year to record new tracks, featuring Kevin and Mark, two guys who met in California in the early 90s. Uh, thanks again, gentlemen. You can find them at facebook.com slash The Spent. In today's episode of Inside the Founder Studio, we have a panel preview with a little panel of our own, featuring Tara Coach's stock of Sloan Partners and Jonathan Norris at Silicon Valley Bank. Our conversation takes a deep dive into the state of finance and medtech. All this is part of our ongoing effort to look at emerging company issues in BioCalifornia and several of our podcast series. You can support all of our podcasts on Patreon, and you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. If you could take a moment to review us on whatever platform you listen to, we'd appreciate it. And to find us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash catechcouncil. Now, this episode was recorded in advance of an event coming up Thursday, February 22nd at University of California, San Francisco, Mission Bay, where both our guests will be speakers. Just before we get to that, let's hear a word from our sponsors at Nixon Peabody. Nixon Peabody, LLP. We see 21st century law as a tool to help shape our clients' futures. For more information, please visit www.nixonpeabody.com. Tara Coach's stock is president of Sloan Partners, an executive search firm specializing in the life sciences, and Jonathan Norris is a managing director at Silicon Valley Bank. As a lead into this episode of Inside the Founder Studio, we asked Tara and John to introduce Sloan Partners and Silicon Valley Bank. First, here's Tara. Sloan Partners is a national executive recruitment firm specializing in the areas of diagnostics, laboratory testing, CRO, drug discovery, and of course, all of the AI and analytics or machine learning that supports all of those industries. Because we're so narrow and focused by industry, we're broad within them, supporting, of course, all the natural key functions and functional areas like operations, sales and marketing, finance, and human resources. Additionally, we support companies in finding the specialists that make the secret sauce of a company, the technology or scientific areas in organizations, really focusing on the executive leaders and upper management, including C-level, board-level positions, vice president, director, or head of a particular area. Really partner with our clients to help find not only people who can perform in the role, but also fit the company culture of the clients we serve. We're really passionate about finding the best out there and partnering long-term with our clients to help build amazing companies. And here's a minute from John on SVB. Silicon Valley Bank is a commercial bank really focused on working with companies that have some sort of secret sauce technology. And so that goes across technology and healthcare and energy, and we also have some really interesting practices in, in uh, wine as well. And where we'd like to do, what we'd like to do is work with companies from the very earliest stages. You know, idea on a napkin is not too early for us to engage and work with these companies on the commercial bank side through venture funding, up through public and, and revenue, and help these companies not only with their 
banking needs, but also strategically help them think through debt and how that can help them to uh, look to accelerate the type of development that they're working on at that particular time. In addition, you know, we really think about ourselves as really strategic. So not only do we have the objective banking services that you would expect from a, from a bank, but we also subjectively really look to be a value-add partner. So we produce a lot of thought leadership. We sit down and we talk with our clients and find ways to help them be more successful in running their business. And that really is what Silicon Valley Bank is all about. So with that, as an introduction to Tara and John, let's turn to our conversation. We're joined today by Tara Kochis-Stock and our friend Jonathan Norris from Silicon Valley Bank. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Pleased to be here. Appreciate your time today. John, always a pleasure. Same. Matt, looking forward to our discussion. So, Tara, let's start uh, first with a a sneak peek at uh, an event you have coming up on uh, February 22nd in Mission Bay. Uh, Loan Partners is hosting a, a panel discussion about uh, financial models in emerging uh, life sciences. Can you tell us a little bit about that event and the series that it connects to? Oh, happy to. This is one of a series, and there was a, a, a panel discussion actually similar to this one in the fall of last year in Boston, and we replicated this series about building amazing companies and the focus on building amazing companies in having the right financial and or legal partnerships in supporting growth companies, whether you're going from seed to series A or A to B or mezzanine, the focus on growing companies and navigating those times. And so with that in mind, Sloan Partners will be producing two more events this year, another one back on the East Coast in Boston, and then wrapping up this year with an ongoing series into 2019 back here in the Bay Area in the fourth quarter. We expect one of those two events will be around this, the insights around building companies and creating boards that are functional and productive versus dysfunctional and not so productive, which is a huge category for growing companies. This Thursday or this event, which is February 22nd, will be in fact at UCSF Buyers Auditorium in Mission Bay. is free um, and open to those who are listening and want to join us. It starts at 5 p.m., wrapping up at 8 p.m. with a panel conversation um, around 6 p.m. at the hall. And so we look forward to, to this discussion. It's going to be moderated by Bijan Sahalizadeh from Navamed, featuring our own John Norris, giving insights into what's happening in funding, investments, and exits. Uh, Kelly Gardner, who sold her company to Biotechni, Deval Lashkari from Telegraph Hill Partners, Julia Moore from Breakout Ventures, Breakout Labs, and Todd Rumberger from Foley Lardner, and Kyle Wilson from Broad Oak Investment Partners. We're looking forward to it. Thanks, Tara. I, I think, uh, John, this time of year, you're, you're on this kind of speaker circuit, uh, often uh, with some updated annual reports, and, and this year is no different. You've got some new material. Can you tell us a little bit about what your, uh, your sort of first look at the 2018 annual report looks like? 
Yeah, sure. Um, when you look at what's happened within sort of the, the venture healthcare sector, and, and, and I'm really covering three different categories. You have biopharma, you have medical device, and then you have tools and diagnostics. You know, it certainly was uh, 2017, when you look back on it, uh, a year of really uh, amazing fundraising in the sector. So the venture funds themselves raised a record amount of capital to be investing into these companies, which is, which is great news for, you know, startup land, because that means over the next two to three years, they're going to deploy that capital into new investments early and later stage, and then, then continue to support those investments over time. So, you know, this, so despite maybe seeing some record investment into biotech uh, in 2017, I think, you know, those numbers are going to continue to be strong because there's just a lot of venture funding that's out there. And so I think when I, when I also think about 2017, it was, it was a year of, you know, an, uh, a very open IPO market for biopharma, and medical device continued to be a very steady eddy in terms of the type of exits that happened there. On the DX tool side, it's very interesting um, you know, dichotomy where you saw a lot of investment into the DX tool sector and you saw $100 million plus uh, investments into you know, Garden and human longevity and then a billion dollar fundraising by Grail. Yet on the other side, on the exit side, there wasn't much activity to be had. So lots of investment in the sector, and we think there's going to be some good stuff to come down the, down the road in DX tools, but not much exit activity in 2017, which I think sets it up for a really intriguing 2018, which I think is part of what we're going to talk about on the panel. So pent-up demand a little bit, John. <laughs> yeah, uh, very, very much so, but also maybe a question of where do we go from here? Because what we've seen is a lot of investment in the DX tools sector that are um, in the, the DX analytics and the DX tests as well as R&D tools, which are sort of the three categories that we look at. Um, you know, liquid, liquid biopsy was a huge area of investment. And we also saw what I think is a really interesting trend of tech investors becoming dominant investors in the DX tools sector. And it just really sort of begs the question when you look at the amount of capital that's been invested in the DX tool sector and some of the valuations that we've seen, which, is, which are pretty amazing, which I'll get into more on the panel or, or the prelude to the panel. But you know, where are the exits going to be for these companies that are valued at you know, some very lofty valuations? Is it, is it going to be uh, your traditional acquirers coming to, to sort of save the day? Is it going to be a whole bunch of new acquirers? Or do these companies have to, you know, decide to go it on their own and go public and, and build themselves into big companies? That's really going to be the intriguing thing that we see over the next two years. Yeah. Come back to that I think, in, a, in a minute, John. And I think there's a lot happening in the type of venture capital that is interesting here. But before we get to that, I want to go back, uh, Tara, to something about the sort of comparison in these segments that John refers to, when you're working with the management team of, let's say, a company that is, has reached its kind of Series A and, and has its investors on board, is the process of building out a therapeutic biotech management team different than it is in, in the diagnostics and tool space? It is. And, and I would say that 
there are some distinct differences because of really the call points, if you will, sort of the, the end product. Although the lines are graying and everyone at some point is working toward or working with the consumer and or patient, that transformation, that complete transformation in diagnostics and tools hasn't really happened the way it has in biotech. And so, therefore, I think the, the skill set, the background of the leaders of these organizations are still from different camps, if you will. Having said that, the lines are graying, and there's more crossover because of the need for the insights and I think um, John was talking about this and, and the need for analytics and the, you know, the demand that's placed on the talent to be scientifically strong as well as business-minded, that's not gone away, and that's a need in all of the industries that we serve. But when we think about the delivery and growth and commercialization of companies, the endpoints are different, the exits are different, and, and that does put different pressures on the leaders causing them to still come from, from different paths of life. In an ideal world, there would be so much crossover, and in five to ten years, I think we'll see more of that, um, but we're, th we're not there yet in terms of the background and skills. They're, they're different, and the, it has to do a lot with who the end user is of what's being produced and or sold. So, John, I'm going to bring pop culture into this next question. I'm sure you're watching with interest, as many of us are in the industry, that Patrick Soon-Chiang is bidding for the LA Times, and I think the San Diego Union-Tribune, which I think would let, uh, bring a biotech billionaire to a new level of a role in his community. Uh, the, the question I want to ask you is about how biotech is becoming integrated more and more uh, with kind of peers of investors and CEOs and and others from other innovative industries. If you were to look at uh, groups like Breakout Labs, which comes from Peter Thiel, um, the CZ Biohub in San Francisco, and, and which comes from uh, Mark Zuckerberg, how, how are you seeing the shape of investment in healthcare changing overall? Well, I think to me, if I look over the last two to three years, uh, the biggest change that I've seen is really one, it be, it, you know, I think, Everything sort of becomes a really, it's a big data problem, um, especially with, you know, mapping the human genome and having lots of data out there. And, and really, I think when I see the emergence of artificial intelligence and machine learning, that, to me, is, is one of the biggest uh, uh, pushes on the healthcare industry in terms of outside pressure. And I think to, when I look at the emergence of these tech investors coming into healthcare, it's because there is a big data problem, and you're seeing tech investors as well as um, you know tech CEOs and people that are are really smart with artificial intelligence and machine learning saying, you know, this, these healthcare problems can be helped by algorithms that help sort through the data and come to conclusions that allow you to do things better, smarter, or cheaper. And so, you know, when I do think about sort of pop culture and the idea of you know, merging tech with healthcare, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about that over the last two decades, but now we're seeing it happen. And when I, when I look at my 
paper from this year looking at investments into DX and tools, just as an example, the top investor in that category over the last two years is a tech investor. And I just, you know, five years ago, I never would have thought that that would have happened. But it is really the emergence of finding ways to leverage artificial intelligence into the healthcare system. And obviously that's happening on the software side and digital health, et cetera, but it's really making its way into DX tools. It's making its way into to drug discovery. It's making its way into sensor-based non-invasive, non-invasive monitoring and medical device. It really is having a huge impact on the industry. Now, where, where are those companies going to end up when it comes exit time and how the investors are going to do in those investments is still to be determined. But I think that's definitely a strong trend that we're seeing in the market. So, Tara, let's, let's talk about how that's changing the shape of the overall industry. There's, there's this kind of reinvigorated presence of technology investors, uh, entrepreneurs, greater and greater overlap of uh, the kind of expertise and executive talent. How is that influence uh, shaping hiring and, and the availability of talent in the market? Well, it is having an impact, and we're seeing something similar to what John described in terms of it, it used to be, in diagnostics and tools especially, it used to be that there was a bit of a log jam in, just in terms of computing and ability processing abilities, right? Today, just as Don, John described, today we're dealing with a, a lot more of data and information and building insights, trends, and actionable information that can be used in the healthcare community. And making that transference from data to actionable information are people from a broad walk of life. So it could be a pure tech engineer, a full stack or software engineer. It could be a bioinformatics person. It could be a computational person. Um, the, the point is, is that AI and digital health and analytics has a broad sweeping category that crosses from how we buy things on, on Amazon to, you know, to our, our patterns and our behaviors to how we are impacted by our health care. And so to the point where people with that skill set and have the desire perhaps even to take their skills and come out of tech and be part of healthcare. And even, I mean, it sounds kind of lofty and goofy, but it's, there's some truth to it, to be part of organizations that are making a difference, that have a purpose outside of retail that is meaningful to someone's life. And healthcare provides that vehicle where the technology has arrived, the need is there, the skill sets are there, and now there's, there's more crossover. The digital platforms, the AI platforms, machine learning, all offer opportunities and diagnostics tools, biotech alike, and for people to come over from, from that world and use their skills in, an, in a completely different way, and in a way that, that might even impact them personally based on, you know, who they may be working for. So I, I'm not sure I answered your question the way you asked it, but we see a huge category growing, if you want, in recruitment that calls for that type of talent, and there's a space for it. 
yeah, and there's a need for it. Something that you yeah. hinted at there, Tara, that I really would love for you to tease out if you can a little bit is, is there a difference anymore in the CIO that gets hired to work in a tools company or a digital health company as opposed to that at a kind of an emerging analytics startup in, in pure tech? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it really has to do with the vision of where we're going to go and working backward from there. So regardless of the type of company, whether you're producing a drug, a diagnostic, or a tool, when you push the fast-forward button and you look at what needs to be done in that company for them to achieve their goals, and you look at the skills required, I don't know the, the actual proportions, but my guess is 7 out of 10 may not require healthcare or diagnostics experience outside of understanding payer models, re the regulatory environment, because there are some specifics and there are some potholes that can be stepped in if the person or the team, the executive team, doesn't have enough knowledge in those areas to truly be successful. But more and more we're seeing CIOs or people from that walk of life come from outside the industry and really make a huge impact because now we're looking at user experience and other aspects of interfacing with data that previously might not have received as much consideration. Um, not always, but, but more and more there's a shift toward uh, looking at the, the end, with the end in mind and working backward from there, that approach really lends itself to understanding the background of the person and more and more that person is not necessarily coming from traditional diagnostics. And in fact, people from, with enough understanding of the regulatory path might bring new ideas and new ways in thinking about data and how consumers or patients access their information versus traditional pathways. So, John, there's some really interesting, uh, I, I think, context for all this. The, the business model in diagnostics and tools maybe two generations ago was attractive to investors as part of their portfolio because it was quicker to build, quicker to product, quicker to exit. And with all this capital outlay and the heavier computing and the heavier equipment, that might be less true today. Has that changed the mix of, you know, M&A and IPO exits or the overall business model from the kind of runway that you need to, to keep one of these companies growing into maturity or the, that you might actually want to build a, an integrated diagnostics tools company that's going to stay independent freestanding long term? Yeah, I think I think things have changed. Um, you know, when I when I think about the the three categories that that I lump DX tools companies into, and again, yeah, you know, that's you know based on talking to a lot of people and looking at a lot of companies. But you really have sort of your DX um, test companies that are sort of your yes no test. You have your R and D tools, which are typically you know the companies that are selling into big pharma and academia, and then you have DX analytics and a lot of the, the that is related to digital health. There's a lot of software companies that are in there, but it's really about trying to, to look at and dissect um, data into actual information that helps the doctors do their, do their work. But if you look at the straight DX um, tools side of the ball, I think really where the struggle has been over the last five to eight years, it's been on the commercial reimbursement side. You know, it's not necessarily getting your test um, 
out into the commercial world, it's getting coverage of that test. And that has been a real challenge. And I think, you know, we've seen that a lot of these companies have had to raise a lot more money than they thought in order to uh, bridge the gap of getting from a commercialization to an actual commercial reimbursement coverage. And that's been a real challenge. So those are the companies that I think have struggled over the last few years. I think R&D tools, on the other hand, because of the lack of, of FDA oversight and the regulatory pathway, you know, those companies have seemed to be the ones that have exited the best over time. And I think this DX analytics category, which to me is kind of an emerging category, is really where there's a huge amount of upside. Because when you think about what these folks are doing and where the end game is, you know, it could be as a standalone public company, it could be as a part of big pharma or, or somebody along those lines, but it could be absolutely an, um, a part of a, a big tech company's healthcare footprint integration strategy. And so I think there's, there's interest uh, level in all three of these. I think it feels like DX tools, we're starting to get a little bit more clarity on, on action and you know, the time frame to get the commercial reimbursement is starting to, to close a little bit. But I think you know, DX analytics presents the really most interesting um, question on, on who's going to be acquiring those companies and R&D tools continue to be pretty stable. So that's kind of how I see the market over the last few years. And um, you know, obviously things will, will change um, as, they, as they always do but really interesting category. John, this is the part of the podcast where we fast forward over any analysis of the direct-to-consumer segment. (laughs) Uh, I think the last time we talked to you about this stuff was about two years ago, John, and I believe at the time we sort of hinted at the fact that Google and Apple were coming back in. Does their presence change that that kind of M&A lens that you use? Well, I think yeah, this is this is the corollary that I, I put out there, and I don't think it's a perfect corollary, but I think it's interesting. When you go back about five years, you can see that uh, biopharma corporate venture capital was really doing your Series C and D type of investing, and at that time, they switched. They decided they were going to outsource their research and they were going to invest in early stage uh, biopharma venture back companies. So they started doing Series A and Series B investment. And within a couple years, you started to see M&A pick up in that same vein with a lot of early stage M&A. And when I look at the last couple years in DX tools, we see tech corporates like you know, Google Ventures and Amazon Ventures and Microsoft, and, and, and other tech firms that are investing pretty aggressively into the DX tool sector, and they're investing early. And so I think the question is, in the next two years, are those folks going to go from investing to keep tabs on the market to actually thinking about integrating some of these companies into their healthcare footprint? And that, that's what we'll see what happens. But I do, I, I do think that that's that is something that we've seen happen in the past in biopharma that could be repeated on the, on the DX tools slash digital health side. So Tara, one of the things John uh, implied there and, and, and mentioned specifically about reimbursement is that uh, early stage companies do have to think about their, 
their uh, approach to market, their business development strategy, their regulatory strategy. When you're working with extraordinary leaders, when do you coach them to start thinking about adding that talent to the team, starting to think about that regulatory strategy? What's the right time? I don't think it's ever too early. And I was shocked. I was at a conference earlier today, and one of the speakers there talked to the audience, and this is, you know, relevant audience in, in diagnostics and tools, um, about thinking about their product or service and how their pathway to getting paid. How will you be paid? Who will be paying for, for what you're producing or, or providing? And I was, I'm always shocked, always shocked in this sort of boot camp environment to see how many, you know, hands go up where we're looking at founders and, and CEOs of companies that, that don't have a clear path to getting reimbursed. And, you know, in diagnostics, when and it's, it's a fairly heavily regulated environment, um, you know, there, there's talk of how, um, you know, how to, how to get paid. There's some national coverage decisions, there are local coverage decisions, and these impact or how Medicare behaves has traditionally impacted how other payers pay, and it sort of creates a trickle effect. And there, there was some talk in the audience of, you know, the strategy of Medicare last and going directly to the consumer and, and finding, you know, just companies that would produce a product where another company might use it. Ultimately, the consumer then goes to their physician with this information, and, um, and the consumer and physician sort of take part in paying for the product or service. It feels like we might be years away from that. So all of this to say that, some of the, the companies that we work with, so for instance, um, Third Rock seeds all of their companies with a CEO, CFO, and a CBO. So they seed their companies with the business person in, in the room, and that's probably not too early. The, the pathway to getting paid is connected directly to the business or the commercialization of an organization, and if that's not ferreted out early enough, even great ideas may not make it out of make, may, may not make it out of the lab, and that would be a shame. And so, it's you know, from that perspective, it's not too early to consult. It's not too early to hire. It's not too early to figure out how what we're doing will be paid for. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting approach that they would populate each of their portfolio companies with that that trinity in place. They do, they do, and and it seems to work for them, you know. And it may not be for everyone. We work with just as many companies on the executive search front where, you know, they they will have that sort of figured out through consultants. Um, and then hire somebody who works for the company to really create a strong commercialization pathway and, and leverage the work of others done before them. But the point in that case is that the, the pathway to payment has been established and is clear. And it's, it's just a, it's a really important part of figuring out the company's overall strategy, and it's not, it's not ever too early to bring someone in for that conversation to make sure there is a clear path for payment. 
Okay, so we're going to use our crystal ball. Now, John, obviously the, the, uh, the economy is hot. Uh, the Bay Area economy in particular is right around full employment. If you're looking at, at the year ahead, uh, how is the pipeline going to go? How do filings tell you that it's going? Uh, what do you see in 2018 from this point? Yeah, if I just look at the the investment environment, like we spoke about before, you know, there's lots of venture capital out. Funds have been aggressively fundraising, so there's capital out there. On the exit side, you know, when, when I look at the IPO market, especially for biopharma, the the pre-money valuations that we're seeing for these companies is really quite nice. It's actually at the highest point that we've seen over the last five years. So, you know, with an impending up-round possibility for a lot of these companies and a lot of crossover investment in private rounds that have happened over the last few years, I think the IPO market will continue to be fairly strong. And there were 31 venture-backed IPOs last year in Biofarm. I think we're looking at, you know, somewhere between 28 and 32 for 2018. I think we're already at seven. Um, so we've had a really good start to the year. You know, device, I think, is harder to, to find an IPO outlet, but M&A feels like it continues to be really strong. And actually, the M&A for innovative uh, PMA slash de novo 510K uh, type of products continue to be very strong. And, and I think, you know, that's, those are the companies that seem to be getting the best return on investment in the quickest time, even though when you think about that versus your traditional 510K, it takes longer to get to approval, but a lot of those companies actually are getting acquired before approval. And then when you, when you look at the crystal ball for DX tools, you know, there's some fairly good companies that have some revenue and, you know, maybe there's some IPOs to be had in the, in the sector. We haven't seen much in the last couple of years because, you know, the, the, the IPOs that we saw in the DX tools sectors a few years ago didn't perform really to, to expectations. So, um, but I think there's some really interesting technologies that show some growth that could end up getting out into the public market. And I think, frankly, at the valuations that you're seeing with some of these companies, that's really the, the way to go, is to raise money in the public market and just keep going and really build yourself into a big company. So I'm feeling pretty bullish about where the exit pathway is for all three sectors in 2018. Flip side of the same coin, the Bay Area, San Diego, Orange County, some of these markets are at full employment. What would you define as overheated if there is such a thing, or does this continue and do we continue to find the right uh, people in the right places? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to, it, it, <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to say it's not uh, at least um, what you would say is maybe a little bit frothy or overheated because of the amount of capital that's out in the market and the fact that there was a record amount of investment in biopharma last year. Um, you know, what I look at is one, you know, if the IPO market continues to stay open, then that's, you know, an optionality for these companies between M&A and IPO, which allows there to be a lot more activity on the exit side. If the IPO window closes, that could be a little bit of a challenge. But I also, what you worry about in the market is, is valuation. You look at valuation and then you look at where traditionally exit values are. And so if there's anywhere that you get a little bit nervous about in the market, I think, is you continue to see valuations go up, but you don't necessarily see exit values go up substantially. Um, that might change this year. We might see some big exits, and actually 
you know, frankly, impact biosciences, I think, is the one that went out uh, in January of this year with a $1.1 billion upfront in biopharma. So that certainly got the year started off right on the M&A side. So um, I think I'll just be looking at the trends around an open IPO market as well as figuring out if repatriation has any effect on M&A for this year, which it feels like it should. Um, those are sort of the, the, the things that I would look at as indicators of, of whether, whether things are being overheated or, or whether we're, we're heading for, for um, tougher times. So, so, Tara, I think from the human uh, capital part of this equation, the last time we had this issue, I think, in life sciences in California's big life science clusters, maybe in about the mid-2000s to late-2000s, we reached a point where there were certain job categories that might have stayed open for 400 days, and that was a red flag. Uh, are we, do we have difficulties like that now, or have we gained efficiencies enough in finding the right talent that if you have to import somebody from Florida or Texas, you can, you can do that if you need the right kind of product person or clinical person? I think there are two ways to answer that, Matt. One is the unemployment rate is low. The, you know, if it's a buyer-seller market, it's a candidate market right now. And so it, you, you said it, and it is true. And it's not just in California. It's all over the United States as it relates to talent in probably all across healthcare, specifically diagnostics tools and, and, um, and life sciences. Having said that, California has its own challenges, particularly the Bay Area, in terms of cost of living. So, you know, Florida has some nice benefits from no state tax, and uh, Texas enjoys that and a few others. So looking at recruiting people from outside of California poses a great many challenges, and one of which are top of that list is just the cost of living. And what makes it challenging isn't that people, you know, aren't willing to, to do it. They may not be able, they may not have a choice. And companies may not be able to pay enough for that position to compensate for the changing cost of living. So if somebody is, is you know, earning $150,000 or $100,000 in Florida today, they, they need to earn nearly $200,000 here in California to enjoy a similar quality of life or lifestyle. And that becomes untenable for growing companies where cash is king or any company for that matter because then now they've created a different problem internally with their existing team and equity amongst the people who are already there and maybe in similar level positions. So California has a unique challenge around recruiting, around finding the right level person, particularly for a growing company or a company that may be looking at IPO, if their head's down. And, you know, in all of their core business, in all of their core departments, operations, finance, sales and marketing, and human resources, they're head down. In the technology areas of their company, they're, they're innovating and pushing product out or services out. And so attracting people from outside California requires a deep dive into the, the talent out there, depending upon the level person that you're seeking, because in a growing company, the work has to get done. And 
So finding someone who can actually do the work, who wants to be here, who has that blend of science and business and can really propel a company forward can be challenging. And having, you know, quite frankly, having a company with eyes on it that can see, you know, who's the best out there and how do we attract this person really comes in handy under these circumstances because it's it's no longer who can we find or who's in our network, who do you know, Um, but you're answering an entirely different question about who's the best out there and how can we attract and hire that person. Just as a kind of a a parting thought, of course, this this event again is 5 p.m. on the 22nd of February in Mission Bay, and I want to ask you to both pretend that you're with us in the audience, and and John, I'll start with you. This is a really interesting gathering of people that's going to be speaking. If you were an attendee, what would you want to ask if you had one question uh, of any of those panelists that are on the lineup? Well, I think, yeah, the panelists are pretty amazing, Um, and I think I would say, you know, if you had your crystal ball who are the tech acquirers that will emerge as major players for DX tools acquisitions over the next two years? And I would let the panelists sort of opine on what they think. It would be interesting to hear. I don't want to say what I would think. I would say let's, let's let the panelists speak and, and figure it out from there. But I think it would be an interesting one. That's a great question. Uh, Tara, what about you? I would ask a question about... What decision, what decision will I have to make? I'm a CEO of a growing company. We're raising our Series A. What decision will I have to make in the next 12 to 18 months panel that I'm not thinking about today that I need to be? I, I have a feeling you both know somebody who will be in the audience who might be able to ask these questions. That could be helpful. <laughs> Uh, so we've been joined today by Jonathan Norris and Tara Kochis-Stock. Thank you both for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Happy to do it. Thanks again. Well, thanks again to both Tara and John, and of course to Nixon Peabody for their continued support. And of course to the band The Spent. You can find them at facebook.com slash The Spent. Uh, their song Highway has been featured on this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the California Technology Council's podcasts on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. And you can support these podcasts at Patreon. You can find us there at patreon.com slash catechcouncil. And check out our upcoming calendar at californiatechnology.org slash events. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next time. Inside the Founders Studio is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.